listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. In December of 2022, BMO Financial Group completed its acquisition of Radical, expanding our carbon credit development capabilities, our footprint in the environmental commodity market, and deepening our commitment to help clients understand and assess energy transition risks and opportunities. This episode of Intune is taken from a video cast that we did that is focused squarely on Radical and Carbon. It is moderated by Doug Morrow, our ESG analyst, who was joined by three participants or panelists. Saj Shapiro, head, BMO Radical, Chelsea Bryant, trader, BMO Radical, Rachel Walsh, carbon innovation analyst here at BMO. And with that, let me turn it over to Doug Morrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our discussion today on BMO Radical. My name is Doug Morrow, and I work on BMO's equity research team as an ESG analyst, and I have the pleasure of moderating today's session where we're going to explore a little bit uh, BMO Radical's business model and some of the ways that we think Radical can create value for BMO clients. So I'm delighted to be here today with San Shapiro, the head of BMO Radical, Chelsea Bryant, Managing Director, Trading at BMO Radical, and Rachel Walsh, who covers the carbon markets and carbon innovation opportunities on BMO's equity research team. So maybe let's start with a quick round of intros. Uh, Saj, if I could start with you, please. Sure. Thank you, Doug. Uh, my name is Saj Shapiro. I'm head of BMO Radical. I've uh, been involved in this industry since I think the very first study that I undertook in 1998 to look at the carbon intensity of oil field equipment. And since then, I've been in involved in various activities. Uh, over four years ago, uh, took hold of Radical and helped grow it to where we are today. We're very excited to be at a point where we believe it's a, a bit of a tipping point about what we can do in industry, how we can work together with BMO's clients, and what we can do generally in identifying sustainability opportunities and challenges and helping customers on their journey. Great. Thank you, Sash. Uh, Chelsea, over to you. Thanks so much. Uh, my name is Chelsea Bryant, and I have the pleasure of leading our trading sales and marketing teams here at BMO Radical. Uh, I've been in trading and environmental commodity markets for over a decade. They really like grabbed my heart and my gray matter and never let go. And so it's really excited to be here today to talk to you in terms of our breadth and depth of exposure and experience across um, environmental commodity markets. We currently transact um, in Alberta and Canadian compliance markets, as well as the California cap and trade system, uh, the Corsia Global Aviation Scheme, and across a swath of voluntary carbon markets, including the big hitters like Vera, Gold Standard, CAR, and ACR. Uh, as well, our credit development teams have um, engagement across BC and Canadian low carbon fuel standards and the Australian compliance system. So we're touching a lot of pieces across the global landscape here at Female Radical. Back to you, Doug. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And Rachel, over to you. Uh, thanks, Doug. So I am the Carbon Innovation Analyst in the Equity Research Group at BMO. And there are two main facets to my coverage. So I cover carbon markets and other mechanisms that put a price on carbon from a macro perspective. 
And then I also cover companies that generate revenue in those markets. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Rachel, and, and thank you to all, you, all of you for, uh, for those uh, backgrounders. So maybe let's jump into it now. And, uh, you know, really, I think just to set the scene a bit, as listeners, um, you know, may know, two weeks ago, BMO completed uh, the closing of the acquisition of Radical. Um, and as we heard from, from Chelsea already, one of Canada's largest developers of carbon offsets and a market leader in carbon credit, carbon credit origination and trading. Uh, you know, I think that when many companies or non-specialist investors, if we can call them that, uh, hear the phrases carbon offsets or carbon credits, you know, there's definitely a, you know, a clear sense of opportunity because, uh, you know, everyone can see that the impacts of climate change are becoming more significant and, and more severe and that using market instruments uh, to price and trade carbon is going to be an important part of the solution. But in my experience, in my conversations, I, I think it's also easy to get tripped up a little bit when discussing the, the carbon markets, uh, partly because of the perceived complexity of, of these markets, and also, frankly, because they remain uh, new uh, to a lot of organizations, even though carbon markets have been around uh, going way back to the 1990s, and as I understand it, first theorized way back in, uh, in the 1960s. So, Rachel, if I could start with you, can you please just maybe start us off by summarizing the state of play uh, for carbon offsets in Canada and what the regulatory backdrop looks like? Yeah, thanks, Doug. So I think to start off here, it might be helpful just to describe what an offset is and what it accomplishes. So an offset is the reduction or removal of one ton of emissions in one place to compensate for emissions elsewhere. Now, these offsets can be turned into fungible credits and sold in a centralized market. And it will note, you know, while there are small differences, we do use the words offset and credit almost interchangeably. So by creating that market-based mechanisms, efficiencies are gained across the entire system because they provide more flexibility for emitters. Uh, and that's relative to the pursuit of internal emissions reductions independently. So let's imagine a scenario where it costs a facility $100 per ton to reduce their emissions, while it costs another facility $50 per ton to reduce their emissions. If we're able to trade those reduction units, we can realize twice the amount of reductions with the same amount of capital. So you can see clearly efficiencies gained across the system through the use of those tradable offsets. Specific to Canada, um, regulators have been using these offset markets to drive emissions reductions for regulated entities. At the moment, we have a system in place for large stationary emitters. So you can think of things like refineries, chemical plants, things of that nature. These systems, they're either run by each individual province or they're run by the federal government, but they require uh, emissions to be reduced gradually over time. One uh, market of note that I'll point out is the Alberta tier market, which is very relevant to our clients. In addition to that, we're also seeing some other regulated markets pop up, particularly the clean fuel standard, um, which will drive down the carbon intensity of liquid fossil fuels. Um, so certainly a lot of moving parts on the Canadian compliance side of things. But I'd say the big takeaway here um, is that access to these markets is largely restricted to those regulated entities. And we call them regulator compliance markets um, as a result of that participation in these markets is not optional. There's also a unique international market that's been emerging. Um, and while it's been around for a long time, to your point, 
It's gained a lot of relevancy of late. And this is for emitters who would like to offset their carbon footprints voluntarily. It's called the voluntary carbon market. Um, Unlike the compliance market, no restrictions here in regard to who can access it. So a large industrial company could purchase offsets. So could a small company. uh, And even you or I could access this market and purchase offsets. Um, I will note here, though, that credits between these compliance markets and the voluntary market are not interchangeable at the moment. Um, And while you know, this market still remains relatively small compared to compliance markets. It's seen really impressive growth over the past few years, and that's tied to the explosion of net zero targets. Um, There are some emerging central exchanges for this market, but largely uh, these voluntary credits are uh, purchased over the counter through a broker. So I would just note that as well. Got it. That's really helpful, Rachel. Thanks. So it's it's a really critical distinction between the compliance and, and voluntary markets. So um so Chelsea, taking that background and then translating that to to, to radical, uh how if you can just talk about how radical uh develops carbon offsets and also um what new market participants should be thinking about as they look to engage in the carbon markets. Absolutely, Doug. So I think the first thing to note about Radical specifically and what's a unique differentiator of our credit development services is that Radical has invested and developed a proprietary software platform um, that is utilized by our incredible credit development team. And so that specific platform provides a level of data transparency and integrity that is interest relieving. And so if you think about sort of the traditional way of generating um, carbon offsets, there's a lot of black box approaches across the industry where we really differentiate as having access to this proprietary software that then provides that level of um, data transparency. Again, when you think about creating an offset credit, um, you have that project proponent, that project developer that creates the credit, but then you also have third-party verifiers that need to verify that the information that's used to create this asset is um, accurate. And depending on the system, Um, Sometimes the regulators may select the verifiers. Um, Sometimes they exist in these systems. But effectively, across every system, there are third-party verifiers that verify this information. In the case of Radical, third-party verifiers can then go into our software platform and actually see the specific calculations of how those offset credits are created, which again provides that level of data transparency, which is unique in this industry. Um, On top of that, I'd obviously mentioned and you had uh, reiterated about Radical being the largest developer historically of Canadian compliance grade offsets. So we have a lot of breadth and depth of experience. And for those of you that aren't familiar with this, fun fact, Alberta is actually the first carbon market in North America. So our organization has been in in this system uh, since the infancy of the program. We've now expanded our reach into Latin America and Australia in terms of our credit and development services and have significant depth and breadth of experience across a multitude of different project types. So that's both nature-based, renewable energy, and industrial project types. So um, as we get into a little bit more of the weeds of carbon markets during our discussion today, I'm sure we'll touch on that a little bit more. I think the other thing that's really important is the number one question that I get asked is, what is the price of carbon? And unfortunately, I wish I could just, you know, reach into um, my like crystal ball and tell you that there was one price for carbon, but really there's actually 50 different prices for carbon or more at any given point in time. And it's completely dependent uh, on the system that you're looking at. So whether you're looking at a compliance system, whether you're looking at, say, low carbon fuels versus you're looking at offset credits, whether you're looking at a voluntary market in the voluntary market, if you're looking at removals versus, you know, avoidance reduction times, 
there is a plethora of different carbon pricing. And so an even like more interesting piece about this is that these markets are opaque. Um, and so as my fellow panelists had mentioned, a lot of these still trade OTC through bilateral contracts. And so you don't have full pricing transparency. So at the same point in time, you can have the exact same um, carbon offset with the same specs, and it could have multiple different prices depending on the counterparty you're talking to. And so that's a really, really complex piece of these markets that um, new market participants need to get their heads around. And so it's really, really important to look at developing your strategy of how you want to engage in these markets. Not all projects are created equal. So it's really, really important to dig into technical due diligence when you're looking at what you are buying specifically. And then it's really, really important to understand that, again, vast majority of these markets trade through bilateral contracts. There isn't a standard form of agreement. There's no is done in these markets. And so how you structure that agreement, how you negotiate the different components is incredibly important to maximize your value and to mitigate your risk of engaging in these markets. And that's something that we do hand in hand with our clients. It's interesting because Chelsea, when you talk about how there's no, you know, one single price on carbon, it reminds me of a question I often get is, Doug, what is the size of the ESG assets under management market? And I say, well, it really depends what you mean. Uh, it could range anywhere from X to you know, X to Y because there is no single market uh, standard. So that, that that's a really interesting insight. And Chelsea, just one last uh, follow up, uh, just in terms of the history. When did that market in Alberta uh, begin? Two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Okay, got it. Um, thank you. So, Saj, turning to you now. I think you know, based on what we're hearing, I think it's clear that uh, a huge part of uh, the value proposition for Radical is in uh, is in the advisory services space and really just helping companies understand, you know, perhaps first and foremost, where their greenhouse gas emissions come from, how they can be measured and monitored over time, and how ultimately they can be mitigated. So can you maybe just walk us through some of the advisory tools uh, that Radical has set up and perhaps comment on the level of knowledge that you see um, in the market in terms of awareness about the importance of greenhouse gas mitigation uh, across some of the companies that uh, that you've worked with. It's, uh, th thank you, Doug. I think as we just heard from both Chelsea and Rachel, this is an incredibly complex field. Uh, the level of knowledge and awareness among corporates varies dramatically. And even regular entities and carbon programs all have a pretty basic understanding, some more sophisticated than others, but essentially of their scope one and two emissions. And then as soon as you get into scope three, it becomes that much more complex. And so really for us as Radical, what we've done is we've presented an advisory service as, as the front end piece to what is really a full service carbon emissions reductions business. And really we assist businesses in precisely measuring, managing and reducing carbon footprints and all that by using our climate accounting software that Chelsea alluded to that we are software based. So that first initial piece of software is called Climate Smart, which essentially accounts for your emissions. We then have a credit, uh, carbon credit project development expertise and software that allows you to develop credits through your uh, reduction activities. And then carbon credit trading services that Chelsea runs uh, that we pair with strategic advice from carbon emission experts. What that does is allows you to, uh, allows us to help our clients minimize their impact, maximize their return on their company's carbon emissions, and also drive home some more planet positive emissions. What that means specifically is that we, uh, as the initial foray into our business, um, we 
a client will come in and get just very initial training sessions about greenhouse gas emissions and measurement best practices, which essentially allows them to just speak in carbon and be able to address some of the concerns that they and, and their industry and their clients will have. And then we have proprietary software supported program that makes it easier to enter and store your data, uh, calculate and learn about your emission footprint. And from there, you get access to one of our sustainability advisors, essentially works with each customer individually and helps them learn about how our software works and how it generates actionable emission reduction plans. And then lastly, as I mentioned, the software that produces emission reductions, some of these reduction activities do qualify for creating carbon credits. So really together with BMO clients, we think that it's never been more important to be able to really understand and speak to your emissions, both as a risk and as untapped opportunity for yourself and for your uh, company. And for me personally, I've been involved in, you know, over 25 years of everything from entrepreneurial uh, initiatives to large corporations. And this is a challenge at every step of the way about where you invest, where you identify the risks to your results and how you manage that over the long term. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here, you, you referenced uh, scope one, two, and three, uh, greenhouse gas emissions under the greenhouse gas protocol. Can you just quickly summarize for listeners, the differences between those and, and what they mean? Um, because I know obviously scope three these days is, uh, is a much more important area of focus for investors, but can you just unpack what those three scopes look like? Yes, it's relatively straightforward for scope one and scope two. It's essentially the first one is what you do that you are in control of in your shop, in your facility, in your office, essentially the emissions that you create yourself. The The scope two is essentially what you buy. You can buy your heating and so forth. But scope three is really where the, the rubber hits the road, if you will, because it's downstream effects from what your products do, from uh, how your users will use your product and how the uh, your clients at the very end of, of all of that will utilize it. So it's very difficult once you get downstream, how you calculate that up and how you assign each of those emissions to which product, which service provider. Because as you know, every product that we have today in our homes is manufactured in one place and uh, transported by, by another company and probably packaged by even a third company and then there's logistics and so forth. So it's very difficult once you get there, The the ability that we have with our software is that it's able to embed your scope one and scope two, and then we're able to take in your suppliers and your clients and take their emissions and their accounting up, and that will become your scope three. So as we get broader across this new BMO radical universe, we will be able to capture all of those scope threes, not just for BMO's clients, but for BMO itself. Got it. Okay. That's, that's helpful. So. So it's just one more follow-up then. So you've hinted at this in terms of talking about, you know, BMO's clients, but when you consider the breadth of uh, the services that uh, and industries that the bank is involved in, what do you see as, as maybe some of the low-hanging fruit uh, that Radical can help BMO clients capture you know, right out of the gate over the short run? And then maybe looking ahead, how do you think those opportunities could potentially evolve over, over the mid to long term? Yeah, that, thank you. That's a that's a great question. The, the easy answer, right off, right off the bat, is that we already have these services today. Uh, all of BMO's clients uh, that are at any stage of their energy transition can utilize our services right now, and we think that our services, our expertise, and our software is really key for BMO to fulfill its commitment to help clients understand and manage risks. 
but also the opportunities of the energy transition that we're all currently experiences, experiencing. So from my perspective, I think that all the BMO clients want to learn about their carbon footprint so they can subscribe today to our climate smart advisory services and to our software. We have a large inventory of high quality carbon offset projects that businesses are able to invest in today as part of their sustainability goals. And in fact, as far as the, the breadth of the clients, there are credit development opportunities right now for EV transportation, for oil and gas, solar, ag, forestry. You know, I, I can just go on and on for opportunities to actually monetize the emission reductions that we can help companies um, develop. Longer term, I think there's lots of opportunities for us to innovate with combined new products and services. It's it's a very fast evolving carbon market and Chelsea can probably speak to that a, a lot more in a lot more detail, but there are a lot of creative financing arrangements that can enable emission reduction activities and technologies. And there's also international reach, diversification of the clients we can grow into. You have to remember it, in this industry and in our world today, there's a rising cost of carbon. There's going to be a lot more complexity, new markets, uh, trading opportunities between different entities and countries. And so being able to navigate all that, I think is key for large corporates and for small commercial enterprises. So over the long term, we think that a company's climate risks only increase. And so the more action you take and the earlier you take it, the easier that transition will be. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Echo. Uh, so Chelsea, uh, you know, turning back to you for one second, Rachel talked about the importance of net zero targets and uh, in terms of driving the voluntary market. And right now, uh, about 90% of global GDP is covered uh, by a net zero target of one kind or another, um, which obviously, you know, implies substantial demand for, uh, for voluntary offset credits. Um, but we've also seen some critiques emerge on the market in terms of the integrity of some of the carbon offset, uh, you know, frameworks that we've seen and even the extent to which they contribute to uh, decarbonization in the real economy, um, as well as where they fit in in terms of uh, overarching emissions uh, mitigation hierarchy. So I'd be really curious to get your thoughts about these uh, critiques and how you see the carbon markets uh, potentially evolving over time. Absolutely. So I think this goes back to my comment that not all credits are created equal. And so there are going to be criticisms of certain systems. There's going to be new systems that come up and whether they meet sort of that level of an integrity, um, robustness, looking at permanence and additionality will remain to be seen as some of these pieces come forward. Um, but it's really, really important to think about this more holistically and say it's not an either or. Like we simply globally will not be able to reach net zero targets without offsets. And we won't be able to decarbonize our economy without making changes within our own corporations, operations, and supply chains. So the scope one, two, and three emissions. And the first step of that is obviously being able to measure those and knowing what that looks like. But when you look at reaching net zero and you look at the marginal cost of abatement within your organization, there is a point when it is not economically feasible to be able to do the entirety of your emission reductions within your own scope one, two, three. And there is not the... Um, specific technologies that will bridge us into the future that exist today at a commercial scale. And so it's really, really important to understand the place that offsets have as this bridge mechanism into the future. Um, there are amazing high quality projects that exist. There's great quality registries, obviously mentioned from a voluntary carbon market standpoint. You have Vera, you have Gold Standard, CAR, ACR, um, there's others, but there are high quality 
products that are in the market today. And the carbon price is absolutely pivotal in ensuring that these activities continue into the future. So you can see when you're looking at Red Plus projects as an example, specific project examples where you can see the deforestation rates that happen around these projects. And so this is not something that can't be dug into from a technical rigor standpoint. Again, going back to you need to understand what you're purchasing and each project, it's not saying specifically this grouped thing is all at the exact same level of integrity. It's really getting into and understanding at a project level what you're specifically investing in and what the impact of those projects are, both from meeting a net zero target standpoint, but also when you're looking even at the co-benefits of these projects as well, because it's not just the environmental benefit that you can see from these investments, but there's also a plethora of co-benefits that come from them. And so I think those pieces are really important to understand and to dig into when you're looking at this. The other piece that I think is really important to understand is that there's a few different um, entities that are looking at voluntary carbon market integrity. But if we villainize everything that exists today, I would say perfection is the enemy of the good. So you can't say that everything that exists today doesn't work because there actually won't be anything that you can use. And so the question is, then what are we doing? So it's really, really important to look at it and say, holistically, what is this doing? Yes, there are, you know, in anything going to be bad actors. So again, it's incumbent on us to do our due diligence and ensure what we're investing in is high quality and meets those integrity standards. But also, it's really important that the integrity standards allow these systems to come into existence and to scale to the level that is needed. Because if you look at the net zero commitments, we saw a 4x growth in the volume of transactions between 2021 and 2022. If you look at what's happening now and into the future in terms of demand for net zero, the curve is like this. So ultimately, we need to be able to scale these markets to be able to meet that demand curve. And in order to do that, we need to have a way of looking at this that is inclusive to allow these activities to actually be able to create credits. I love that expression that you use about not letting perfection become the enemy of the good. And it's one that I personally have used myself when talking about the difficulties around, you know, measuring companies' broader ESG performance because we're still on the pathway to, uh, you know, really rigorous and comparable standards. So uh, I think I think there's a parallel there. And Chelsea, if I can just ask one follow-up, um, I remember when I was learning about the carbon markets. I would come across these words that you used at the very beginning of your of your response, which were uh, permanence and additionality, and just uh, because it was so obvious to me how crucial it is to understand the, these two concepts for understanding the carbon markets. Can you just maybe quickly summarize what what permanence and additionality mean and, and how important they are to the functioning of, uh, of the markets? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think of permanence, it's pretty easy. It means that it's a permanent uh, emission reduction. Uh, or removal. And so a good example of this would be, um, say, for instance, if you have pumped um, CO2 into a well and you cap that well, if all of a sudden you were to have like an explosive event where that was released, then that would have a permanence issue. So it's not permanent because it's obviously been released. We're not seeing those types of events happening across the board, but just giving you an example of what that could be. Another example would be if you had um, a forest that was sequestering carbon and that forest burnt down, then obviously it is not having permanence in terms of those emission, um, that emission sequestration. So the one piece I would say, though, in the voluntary carbon market is that they use a concept called buffer pools. So there is an actual aspect of carbon credits that are held back from every single issuance. 
And so that's at both a project level and more at a systemic level for the entire system. And so if you were to have a situation where, in this case, you had a catastrophic fire, the registry itself has actually already held back credits from each issuance in order to account for some of these types of events to happen um, in order to ensure the integrity of those credits that are created. So buffer pools, really important concept to uh, look into as you're educating yourself on carbon markets. Uh, the other piece is additionality. So this means that the credits themselves are additional. And so um, a good example of that is if a practice becomes business as usual, then you would not be able to create carbon credits from it anymore because it's now the standard practice. It's no longer additional to what you would otherwise be doing. So a great example of this is when registry or registries or systems, combined systems, an example, retire specific protocols. And that's because they have additionality tests that are completed in order to calculate when a practice becomes business as usual and therefore is no longer additional. And those credits then won't be created in the future. But it's a great way to have that technology bridge into being at a point um, where it is no longer considered additional. And so we're starting to see this happen in voluntary carbon markets when you look at renewable energy in jurisdictions that are not least developed countries, as an example. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much for that clarification. Absolutely. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. So Rachel, if we can turn back to you for a second, uh, with the penultimate question, um, you know, close observers of the market would have seen that in, in recent days and weeks that we, we did see a, a fairly steep decline in the price of, um, carbon credits in the voluntary market. Uh, although the prices have recovered, uh, to some extent, I'm just really curious to get your views about uh, where this might be heading, uh, what we might be seeing for future prices, and frankly, what type uh, or what level of prices we would need to see um, the Paris Agreement stretch goal up, up 1.5 degrees um, yeah, reached. How do, how do you see this all potentially playing out? I think there's two key elements to that question. The first being, you know, what does it take to drive a net zero economy? And so when you think about the average cost of abatement globally, you know, all estimates at the moment kind of indicate that price is somewhere between 80 to $100 US per ton. Now that's going to vary by jurisdiction. Um, you'll probably see higher prices in more developed nations, lower prices in less developed nations. But, you know, what do we need to drive a net zero economy? The second part of that question is how long is that going to take? Because when you think about that 1.5 degrees scenario, we ultimately have a budget of carbon that we can emit cumulatively into the atmosphere. The longer it takes us to achieve a net zero economy, the more carbon we're actually going to have to remove from the atmosphere to keep warming within that level. So when you think about the pricing there, I mean, there are some lower cost removals options, but those are typically tied to, as Chelsea was alluding to, this permanence issue. So, you know, if we pursue those independently, we're kicking the can down the road. Um, so we really need to pursue these removal storage options that are longer in duration. You know, if we look at forward uh, cost estimates for those technologies, a best case scenario at the moment is kind of around that $150 US per ton. So certainly, you know, mid-century to late century, we're going to need to see carbon pricing on that order of magnitude to keep um, within the 1.5 degrees warming situation, especially, you know, we've been seeing more and more headlines. Uh, we're not making meaningful emissions reductions. The longer it takes to make those, the more we're going to have to remove from the atmosphere, the more we'll need to see that $150 pricing environment. And Rachel, you, you talked about carbon budgets, which is a, 
absolutely fascinating concepts. Um, how close would you say we are? I mean, I, I realize it can probably vary a lot around the margins, but how close would you say we are to uh, exhausting the the, uh, the idea of our carbon budget? Uh, well, for 1.5 specifically, the IPCC now thinks that that's out of reach. Um, so when you think about removals from that perspective, they're going to be need to be very significant um, through the second half of the century to reach that. And and we're even, you know, not on trend on for a two degree scenario. So we're certainly going to need removals um, to keep warming within a reasonable level, regardless of how you frame it, as things currently stand. Got it. Got it. And thank you very much. And then, uh, you know, Chelsea, what would uh, be really curious to get your views in terms of um, what you're seeing in terms of the difference between futures and uh, OTC voluntary markets. Do you have any um, color for us there in terms of what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting if we if you've been following the futures markets over the last um, couple of weeks. In general, we are from a voluntary carbon market standpoint, uh, futures markets are actually really you know quite new. Um, and so there are a lot of financial players that were exceptionally excited about getting into carbon markets, um, but didn't necessarily have the intent of taking delivery of these credits because obviously you can have financial exposure without the intention of actually holding the underlying asset, taking it to delivery, understanding the market, understanding end users and who you're ultimately going to sell those to. And so it's really, really important aspect of looking at carbon markets is that they can be quite illiquid. And so you can see shifts in pricing that can happen fairly quickly. We obviously saw that happen in 2021 with a very substantive run up in voluntary carbon markets as there was large amounts of demand and there's only a certain amount of supply. And then conversely, as we look at the futures markets over the last few weeks and even actually out back throughout this year, um, there's been a lot of volatility in those markets as well um, because again, these markets are still nascent. They can be a liquid for extended periods of time and so if you're forcing um, forced liquidation into an illiquid uh, market, then you can obviously see some pretty substantive price uh, reactions. So it's been really interesting to follow the futures market pricing and the equivalent um, instruments that are being transacted OTC and seeing that there's actually been a decoupling of those prices. And so with the futures market, as it came down and softened, um, we were seeing a premium for the OTC market anywhere from $2. And I think I even wrote a report that was up to $8. So an $8 a ton premium for an OTC transaction of something that was equivalent to the futures contract. And I mean, that's not surprising because again, as we've talked about earlier today, people want to know what they're buying. They want to specifically invest in a one project or two projects or three projects. Those projects they've done you know, significant due diligence on that they're confident in and that has alignment with their impact story and what they are wanting to support financially. And so when you're looking at a futures contract, um, you don't have that specificity of exactly what you're buying. And so with financial um, players that are in these that aren't necessarily intending to take delivery and potentially transacting in and out of them, you can see a decoupling of pricing between the futures contracts and what's trading OTC. So really, really interesting nuance to the voluntary carbon market and something we're certainly going to be following uh, very actively as it evolves over time. Thank you so much. Fascinating. Uh, I wish we could uh, explore all these concepts in extreme detail, but um, we are running close up to time. So uh, I would like to close out with uh, with something I call a lightning round, where we just go around and ask each person on the panel what uh, development or, or issue uh, they would most like to see happen uh, or expect to see happen in the carbon markets in, in 20, uh, 2023. 
So Chelsea, we'll start with you and then uh, get Rachel and then Saj. So just, yeah, high level thoughts about the thing you would most like to see happen, or expect to happen in carbon markets uh, next year. Yeah, so I think the one thing that I would obviously very closely follow is um, compliance market development. And so it's not necessarily all going to happen within 2023. But if you look at things like Corsia, which is the global aviation scheme, we've seen really quick recovery in the airline sector from the COVID um, levels of traffic. And so there was a very quick recovery. And at the same time, you have Corsia, which is now in a voluntary stage. But in 2024, the um, obligations of entities that are under that, and again, you have over 70% of eligible jurisdictions already opted into the system. This is going to be a substantive um a draw on supply from the voluntary carbon market as you have this sort of compliance level demand coming in. The same thing can be said about Article 6. Now, again, I don't think that'll happen in 2023, but Article 6 evolution and how some of these voluntary carbon market instruments will become future compliance instruments um, under Article 6 and have the ability for countries to meet their NDCs, I think is a really, really important development. So voluntary to compliance conversions, that's what my point of topic would be. I think for me, this will kind of touch on Chelsea's prior point on integrity in the voluntary market, but this market is self-governed. As a result, it's come under a lot of scrutiny of late, you know, especially with the uptick in acquisitions of greenwashing. So as a result, you know, I'm looking forward to developments from those integrity initiatives and best practice guidelines for offsetting. I think that could help build a lot of clarity in the industry as a whole. Um, and, you know, I think the voluntary market could serve as a really efficient tool in transition based on my prior points. But ultimately, that growth is going to be predicated on its ability to deliver high integrity products. So really important. We see those things improve over time. Saj, last word to you. Yeah, th thank you. I, I think I would take both the concepts that Rachel and, and Chelsea have brought up integrity from Rachel and compliance markets from Chelsea and essentially marry the two together. So we as a company come from a compliance background, which means that we do everything with a high degree of accuracy and transparency and integrity. So from that compliance background, we're able to apply that same rigor onto the voluntary market for all of our clients. For us as, as a company, being 100% transparent with our clients about how the process works, uh, helps cultivate a sense of shared purpose and close collaboration. And essentially, we empower our clients. We believe that that level of transparency also gets not just the engagement, but elevates the level of discussion and under understanding about this market. And so from that perspective, we as, as a company joined with BMO because I think that there's, you know, Chelsea mentioned before, perfection and expertise. Those are some of our core concepts of values and in, in our culture and what we found with BMO is that there's a strong cultural fit and an overlap in many of our shared core values and so for us at Radical we're always pushing for change we work every day to push for positive change to our environment and we think that the new relationship with BMO enables us to do more together than either one of us could do on our own and have that much of a broader reach so we think that just furthers uh, along not just our vision, but to boldly grow the good for us has a big environmental side to it. Wonderful. Well said, uh, Saj. Um, that's, that's great. So thank you uh, so much to Chelsea, uh, Rachel, and Saj for sharing their, uh, their insights and expertise with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And with that, we can, uh, we can close the discussion. Thank you. Thank you.
That was Doug Morrow, our ESG analyst, leading the discussion with Rachel Walsh, our carbon innovation analyst, Saj Shapiro, MD and head at BMO Radical, and Chelsea Bryant, MD and trader at BMO Radical. BMO Capital Markets is proud to deliver thoughtful analysis of upcoming equity research trends that will prove important to clients' investment decisions through both this In Tune podcast, as well as our commodity-specific Metal Matters, hosted by Colin Hamilton. If you enjoyed today's In Tune podcast, please do subscribe and rate it. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.